Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and today we are very honored to have with us Jeff Price. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Angelo. Good to be here with you. Jeff has been working in the field in New York and the Boulder area since 1996. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Connecticut and his master's degree from Naropa University in 1997. He is a licensed professional counselor, a licensed addictions counselor, and a certified group psychotherapist. Jeff is a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, is a former two-term president of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society, and is a co-owner of the Center for Courageous Living, specializing in working with men and women of all ages who are suffering from addictive behaviors and difficult emotions. He works with individuals, groups, couples, and families, and also offers clinical supervision to therapists and group leaders. He also taught various group process classes at Naropa University in the MA Contemplative Psychotherapy Department, which he had been doing continuously from 2000 to 2016. Well, welcome again, Jeff. We're honored to have you on. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Good to be here. So the first question that we like to ask on the podcast is to hear a little bit about your background and what inspired you or motivated you to enter the field of psychology, psychotherapy, and process work to begin with? Well, it was kind of long, of a long road for me. Um, when I was a very young person, people used to tell me, it's so easy to talk to you, you should be a therapist. And that kind of stuck in my mind. And uh, when I graduated from the University of Connecticut, um, I didn't know what to do. I, I was kind of at a loss. So I thought, well, maybe I could go to graduate school. And uh, I had family members who had gotten into the field of social work. So I thought, okay, a master's in social work sounds good. So I applied to a school in New York. And when it came time to the interview, they asked me, well, what are you gonna do if you don't get accepted here? And I said, I really have no idea. <laughs> and I think that sunk me for that deal. Then a few years later, I applied to Adelphi University on Long Island. And I got into their advanced standing MSW program. 
And I was very excited about that, but I had a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time, and I just couldn't devote the attention I needed to to succeed in that program, so I had to stop that. And then I just bounced around from job to job. Uh, my main career was as a probation officer in Suffolk County on Long Island. Um, I did that for 14 years, but my heart wasn't really in that. Eventually, I met somebody who told me that, quote, you know what you should be doing, unquote. And I really didn't know what she meant by that. And I had to figure it out. And hearing those voices from long ago that I should be a therapist kind of stuck with me. And so I decided I would pursue that. Um, my son was graduating from high school at the time, and I was freed up to go wherever I wanted to go. And I found Naropa University in the Peterson's Guide. Back in the old days, that was not online. It was a hard copy of a book. And um, I saw that it was a Buddhist-inspired school, and I checked it out and uh, immediately fell in love. And that's where I went. I went to Naropa University. It was uh, a very experiential process, which is what I was looking for. And from that point on, it just... Uh, fell into place. Everything was very smooth. My internship led to a career. Um, I met people who helped me along the way. And uh, here I am, 20-something years later. <laughs> Do you know how going to Naropa and being exposed to a contemplative-based program and a mindfulness-based tradition impacted you as a psychotherapist? You know, before I came to Naropa, I had gotten involved with AA. I was dealing with my own alcoholism. And uh, I was about three years into that process when uh, Naropa came along. And they seemed to stink up really well. Um, the focus of both of those programs were keep it in the day, keep it in the moment. And so I did have a few years of practice living one day at a time when I got to Naropa, and then uh, it just boiled down to more of one moment at a time. Uh, so the flow was pretty good, and it felt, it felt very good and natural to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you already, it sounds like had a practice in a sense of really keeping your mind as present as possible. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. How did you go from being a student at Naropa into beginning to specialize in group work? Well, it was at Naropa when I ran into our beloved Bob Unger. He was a teacher of mine. And uh, at the end of that one semester program, I went up to Bob and told him, I'm hooked. This is for me. What do I do now? And uh, he said to me, well, the best way to learn how to be a group therapist is to be in a group. Should I invite you to be in one of my groups? And I said, well, if you invited me to be in one of your groups, I would probably accept. <laughs> so he did invite me in, and I've been in that group for over 20 years. Mm. So Bob was very influential in that. Sure, as he is for so many of us. Do you know what it was that was hooking you in that class, in that experience that you just wanted more of? I think what I liked was uh, the stimulation. Um, I had been a little league coach and uh, I've done some, some group work, the AA work that I was doing. And 
I really liked that there was so much going on all the time. There was there were there were always things happening on the left and on the right and in the middle and overall. And I wanted to learn more about that. I was completely taken by that. Mm -hmm. And how did you go from that experience to getting involved in AGPA? Well, that was again through Bob. He, he suggested that I check out the AGPA. Uh, it just happened that that first meeting I went to was in New York, which is my hometown. And so I was very excited about being able to go back to New York and go into Manhattan. You know, I believe it was at the Waldorf Astoria that year. And I just went for a few days, but I just loved it. The, uh, the environment was so provocative and uh, it just felt like home. Of course, being in New York felt like home, but being in that uh, AGPA environment also felt like home. And uh, I was hooked at that point. It was over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for so many of us, AGPA just becomes this incredible home for our professional development. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Being and I understand you've really stayed involved with AGPA in a variety of different capacities. Well, I did. Uh, I started getting involved with the affiliate assembly. Uh, I was the loan representative and loan member of Colorado at the time. Nothing, nothing was happening in Colorado. Uh, the late Bill Sell attempted to... Uh, get something going in Colorado, but it just didn't seem to, to catch on. Um, after a couple of meetings with the affiliate assembly at the AGPA, I decided that we should get something going in Colorado, and I gave that a try. And uh, the response was good right off the bat. Uh, I, I remember that first meeting in my house. Uh, there were probably 15 or 20 people from around the state who came and wanted to be a part of it and get something going. And that was kind of the launching pad from there. Um, I became uh, one of the officers on the affiliate assembly. I was a member at large and that put me on the board of directors at the AGPA. So I was getting more and more involved. Um, also as time went on, I began presenting workshops with uh, a friend of mine and a former teacher of mine, Steve Henney. And we presented, oh, I don't know, five or six workshops and. Uh, that was very nerve wracking for me. So it was very good to have Steve there with me. Um, but it was also uh, very good in terms of getting me more involved in AGPA. And um, I, as, I, as you read in my bio, I served as president for two terms and um, just stayed involved. I'm still doing work with the AGPA on uh, the annual meeting committee. Um, I'll probably be doing that for probably a long time, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. What continues to keep you so inspired about being involved with AGPA and dedicating so much of your time and bandwidth there? You know, seeing the young people coming in is very inspiring to me. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of old timers in AGPA and there's a big contrast between the AGPA in general and what's happening in here, out here in Colorado. Uh, a lot of young people are getting involved, beginning therapists, uh, new graduates, and it's very exciting for me to see these young people getting involved and kind of picking up the torch. Uh, there's a lot of really good energy and good ideas that are coming through, and um, that's very exciting for me. That keeps me going. And I think that energy, like you describe, is so alive at the annual conference. It's such an incredibly enlivening experience being a part of that. 
It really is. It really is. Um, the energy is fantastic. I'll tell you, if it really, if it depended on the old timer, you could just see the end coming because we're just getting older, you know. Uh, to see the young people there, especially at the uh, the party and the dance at the end, uh, the energy is fantastic. A lot of smiling and laughing, and uh, it's just great. It's a great experience. Mm -hmm. So I understand in your career, you've continued to specialize in a number of things group related, one being substance abuse counseling, as well as large group process. And I'd really love to talk to you about both of those and the unique opportunities they each present for participants. When you're running a substance abuse focus group, I'm curious what kind of considerations are moving through you specific to that kind of context, as opposed to a more general process group. It's true. Um, the substance abuse groups that I lead are at an agency where the clients are court ordered to participate in some kind of treatment. So they join education groups and therapy groups. When they come into these groups, they're very scared. They don't know what's going to be happening to them legally. And they're angry because of the way they've been treated by the criminal justice system, which can be uh, pretty impersonal and even at times dehumanizing. So when they come into my groups, uh, there are a lot of pretty strong emotions going on. And because it's so fresh, the uh, emotions are not that hard to discern. They're right there. And that makes it kind of easy to work with. Uh, there's not a lot of subtlety to the anger and the feelings of fear. Um, so when I work with these people, um, what I try to do, and I even tell them this sometimes, pull the curtain back and tell them where I'm coming from, which is to try to detoxify the situation, have them calm down, let them know that at least the experience in our group is going to be okay. They're not going to be forced to do anything. Uh, they'll be treated like real people. They're not going to be labeled criminal or alcoholic. And I try to give them the respect that they deserve. After a little while, maybe, oh, I don't know, four, six, eight weeks, they start to get the message. You can see them literally relaxing in their chairs more. And they even get to enjoy the process. Uh, it's hard for them to admit that because they're being forced to be there. But that is one of my goals, which is to have them calm down take it easy everything's okay <laughs> and uh and have a positive experience um i know that i'm only going to be working with them for a few months maybe three months at the minimum maybe a year to a year and a half at the most which i consider a pretty short time and my secret goal in all of this I hope this doesn't get out too far, is that uh, I'm hoping they'll have a good experience because if sometime in the future they have some problem or some troubles going on, they might say to themselves, hey, that experience wasn't so bad. Maybe I'll check out therapy or try to join a group. So that's my, uh, my secret wish. So it's kind of a warm introduction to the world of therapy. Yeah, if I can do that, that would be great. Yeah. Well, and it's a really evocative example, Jeff, because within that, in that description of how you relate to them when they're in that kind of state, it really 
portrays how you work with resistance. And it sounds like you just try to take as joining and accommodating an approach as possible to help some of those, to help them to feel safe, to help them to feel comfortable in the room so they can relax and they can just engage the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge because they're up against a lot. They're dealing with an awful lot in their lives at the moment. Um, so it takes a lot of patience on my part, letting them just get a lot of stuff off their chest and, uh, you know, spread, spread the love. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious also because you're open about being in a recovery process yourself. And so I'm curious as a group leader, how much do you disclose that to participants in those groups and how much do you um, hold that back? You know, that's funny. That's always a speed bump for me when we're moving right along and somebody says, well, have you ever had a DUI or do you still drink? Um, I kind of double clutch at that a little bit because I don't want to just start talking to them as if I'm, I'm their bar buddy or drinking buddy or something. Um, so what, what I will do is I'll tell them that I, have, I don't have a problem telling them what's going on for me and my story, but I want to know from them why they're interested and get them to talk about their interest in me. Um, they don't really know that they're going to be revealing a lot about themselves when they do that. And then I will tell them about it. Um, but then I ask them, well, what was it? So I told you about me, now what? What do you, what do, you do with that information? And they said, and, and typically they'll say, well, now I know that you can relate to me. Mm. And uh, I said, okay, well, that's, that's nice that you think that. But my story is way different than your story. And your story is different than everybody else's story. So there are some basic things we can relate to, but our stories are different. I don't want to forget that. That's beautiful, Jeff. That's wonderful. Now, you also lead large group, and I know at the upcoming conference that we're having in November, you're going to be leading a large group, and I wondered if you'd do some talking about that, what large group is, what differentiates large group process from other kinds of group process, what are some of the unique characteristics of what comes up in that kind of situation, and what goes on in your mind as you're leading that kind of, uh, of a process? Uh -huh. Well, I first got introduced to large group at the AGPA conference. They have a three-day workshop on large group, um, a couple of hours each day. And when I first went to that, that was my first exposure to large group. And man, that was so intense. And it felt like, I, didn't, I don't know if you've ever seen that experiment where they put ping pong balls on traps and then they drop one ping pong ball and all the ping pong balls get triggered. That's what it felt like. There were ping pong balls bouncing off the walls. People just coming from every different direction, from different countries, different views. It was really amazing. And um, I, was, I was completely hooked when I first got in there. The thing that got me was the, all of the activity and the, the varied views and presentations and emotions that were, were, were coming out. It was completely confusing to me. Uh, but I knew that um, I loved it. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then when I got invited to lead the large group process class at Naropa, <clears throat> I jumped at that. 
Um, I'll never forget the first one I did. It was with, I was co-leading with Dr. Francis Kuklauskas. And uh, I was kind of just following his lead. And Francis, if anybody knows Francis, he's pretty outrageous and provocative and just a great guy to work with. So I had a terrific experience and I wanted to do it more. And uh, eventually Francis went off in a different direction and I started leading large group at Naropa with different co-leaders. Um, and that's, that's always been great. Uh, it's different at Naropa because the groups are not 100 to 200 people. The large group is sometimes as small as 12 or 15 people and only as large as maybe 25, maybe 30. So it's kind of a small, large group, but it still serves the purpose. Um, the difference in my view between the small group and large group is that the small group is more of a, a family type experience with six, eight or 10 people in the room. The large group is more like dealing with a community or society. And so uh, looking at it in, from a bigger picture, you're looking more at uh, what the society is doing at the time, whether it's the Colorado Group Society or Boulder or Colorado or the United States or even in the world. Uh, the last large group that I led at the Colorado Group Society annual uh, meeting last November, it was just on the heels of the uh, election in this country. And so emotions were running very high and it was very exciting to be a part of that and to see where people were coming from and what people were feeling at the time. It was a very heightened experience. And uh, I love that kind of thing. Well, and as you talk about it, you just light up. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could put into words a bit what, what you love most about it. I would imagine some people in that environment might find that incredibly stimulating, but um, maybe overexciting in a way. I'm curious, what, what, you, what, what is it that, that you find so thriving about that experience for you? I've tried talking about this in the past. It's hard to talk about uh, because it just goes so quickly. There is so much going on that it's hard to put my finger on one thing. Maybe it's the fact that there's so much going on that I like. Um, being, a, being a group leader of a large group is way different than being a group member. Um, it's a little bit frustrating being the group leader because I have plenty of things I'd like to say that I want to, I have to hold back on. Uh, in the name of holding, holding the container, as they say. So there's some frustration there, but uh, just being part of it, being part of it. I'm in it. I'm whether I'm a group member or a group leader. It's all happening, and there's an excitement to it uh, because I don't really know where it's going to go next. I don't know who's going to speak next. I don't know what they're going to say. Whether it's going to be something intellectual or something very emotional. Uh, something topical, a dream. There, there's so much potential in a group and it, there's such an unpredictability about it mm -hmm. that, um, what can I say? I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a spontaneous situation, like you're saying. And I remember right. 
being a member of large groups and there is something so incredible about having words being put to tensions that I think so many of us walk around in our everyday life feeling on a societal level. You can just feel it percolating in the air, but to be in a space where all of a sudden that's being talked about, that's being addressed, those attentions are being, those tensions are being verbalized and worked out between members and even between members and the group leader. It is, it's kind of like sitting truly at the edge of your emotional seat. It is, it's, it is like that. And you know, as, as you were speaking, I was thinking that I've always been a history buff. Ever since I was young, I read books about the Titanic and Pearl Harbor and the Alamo. And, and I think history is very important to me. And uh, it's almost like sitting in the middle of history being made. Here we are uh, talking about what's happening in the country and in the world and in people's lives and how it all relates. Um, and in a large group, it's, it's, a, it's like a Petri dish watching the world right in front of me. Very exciting. Absolutely. Well, and that actually calls to mind the conference title for this year is Desire, Wishes, Fears, and Impulses in Group Psychotherapy. And I think it relates to both our desire as group leaders and as members and just what pulls us and draws us into the group experience to begin with. And it made me wonder, what does that evoke for you? Well, it makes me think of how fortunate I am to be in a therapy group and have the opportunity, not just there, but in other places as well, maybe even on this podcast, to talk about what's going on for me and to learn more about um, what triggers me and what excites me and uh, things I may not have known or thought about before. Um, I think the opportunities that come about by being in a group can be very surprising. Uh, and as I said before, unpredictable. Um, there are times when I'm in a group and I feel like I've hit a plateau and what's happening and why am I in this group? And on the other side of the plateau is some area that I didn't know was there. Mm -hmm. And gets me going again. So I think there's something to be said for sticking with this process. Uh, even though you might question it, or I've certainly questioned it. Even as a group leader, sometimes I wonder, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's, what's happening here? I'll get confused and uncertain. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I, I might lose track. And I just try to be patient and wait and see what happens next. Well, it reminds me of that contemplative aspect or the mindfulness aspect of just working in the moment and being open to the discomfort that I think inevitably arises in the therapeutic process and being willing to stay with it rather than trying to exit into right. something else. I agree. There might be a tendency to want to try to control what happens next, but if you try often enough, you learn how that doesn't work. And so you have to be open to what's going to happen next. It has to be a question. I know that we would all like the certainty of knowing what's going to happen next. And when I get in the car and drive to work, I'd like to know that I'm going to get there. But I really don't know. Mm -hmm. So I have to be careful. I have to keep my eyes open. <laughs> well, and I was thinking about that also within the context of um, co-leading, because I think there's a certain degree, perhaps, of um, 
independence or control that we may feel when we're leading a group independently. And then there is the dynamics of co-leading and being uncertain of where your co-leader is or what they're thinking or feeling, or if they want to make an intervention, the leaders both attuning to the group, but also needing to attune to the co-leader. And I'm curious about any of the differences that you see between leading groups independently and leading groups um, in a co-led situation. Oh, <laughs> this is an ongoing project for me. Uh, I love being the sole leader because I have no one to answer to. I don't have to worry about the idea of being on a team. It's just me. It's great. It's very independent. And um, I'm just responsible to me. Uh, Co-leading is a challenge for me. And I've learned a lot about that over the years. Uh, I have to say I've learned a lot uh, in working with Matthew Holleran. Uh, he and I spent many hours talking about our co-leadership when we would co-lead the large group at Naropa. It was, it was uh, tremendously helpful for me. Um, and now, uh, in November, uh, the co-leadership will be in large group with uh, Elizabeth Wellington and myself. So that's going to be very exciting. Uh, we've never led a group together. Um, we're meeting before the uh, large group happens. And um, this is going to be another great experience for me, I know, because it's going to mean being part of a team and paying attention to my teammate sitting across from me. Um, it certainly presents challenges. Being a teammate is very different than doing it solo. Mm -hmm. There's a certain responsibility to my partner and to the group to, uh, you know, to do a good job and to be pretty much on the same page as best we can, support each other, be aware of each other. It's a wonderful experience, even though it is so challenging for me. Well, it's wonderful to hear you talk about your experiences with Matthew Holleran and your excitement with working with clinicians like Elizabeth Wellington. And I think that will be wonderful to see. I'm very excited to be a part of that. And I'm just thinking of the importance of the relationship that happens between two co-leaders because of the parallel process that can occur uh, with the rest of the group based on the tone that's being set relationally between the two leaders. And it sounds like you really make it a point to try to dialogue and engage with people that you're co-leading with so that those kinds of things can be made conscious and addressed. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm, that's right. I've done a couple of workshops at the AGPA over the years on co-leadership. So I have learned a little bit that way. And uh, my experience of spending time working with a co-leader has also shown me how important that is. Um, Elizabeth and I are going to try to get some supervision uh, before and after the large group workshop in November. So that's another thing we're, we're looking forward to. We'll see how that goes. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah. And I love that you bring up the, the topic of supervision because one of the interests that I have is in kind of lineage-based situations and traditions. And, and I think psychotherapy is no different. We learn so much and so much is passed on to us through the supervisor relationships that we have, as well as just our own therapeutic work. And it's my understanding you've gotten to work with some really incredible supervisors. And I wondered if you would be interested in sharing anything about that experience and how it's impacted you. I'd be happy to. Uh, it was such a privilege. Um, when I first got started, I was looking for supervisions, a supervisor, maybe in the area, the Boulder area. 
And I asked Bob Unger about it. And uh, after talking about it, and after he thought about it for a little while, he asked me if I would be interested in doing phone supervision with someone in New York. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. He said, okay, uh, I'd like you to contact Dr. Leslie Rosenthal. Well, I didn't know much about Dr. Rosenthal at the time. I said, sure, I'll, I'll call him. Uh, I got into supervision with him and we met once a month on the phone. And I learned over time what a pivotal figure he was in the development of group theory and, um, and leading group leadership in this country. He was there at the very beginning. I was a student of Dr. Spotnitz. And um, I didn't realize what an honor it was for me to be talking with him every month and to be learning from him. Um, my relationship with him, it was just so sweet. Uh, he was younger than my father, but he felt like my grandfather, almost like I was sitting on his knee. It was, it was very sweet and very tender. He called me Mr. Price all the time, giving me this respect that I didn't know I deserved. <laughs> uh, it was very, very special. And I was in supervision with him when he finally ended his career and uh, when he passed away. And it was a very sad time, but it was very, very special. I'll, I'll never forget our last session together. I'm not going to get into that now here, but it was very, very poignant um, and very beautiful and very meaningful to me. Well, just even as you're talking about that, Jeff, it's just so moving. And the, the encouragement, the love, um, the empowerment that sounds like goes on, went on in that relationship with him and the ways he related to you. It's interesting because what comes to mind is I think a lot of us have that kind of association with you uh, being um, a mentor to so many of us and feeling supported and empowered by you. There's a, there's a way I know I have felt with you and other people that have interacted with you feel like um, you have our back. You, you believe we can do it. And that in and of itself is very inspiring to lead these groups and to step into these kind of situations, which can be incredibly exciting and also sometimes a, a bit frightening. <laughs> well, I do have your back. And uh, if you get scared, you can hold my hand. <laughs> That's very nice to hear, Angela. I appreciate hearing that. Well, periodically, we get um, emails and communication from our listeners, which we absolutely love. It's, it's great to get feedback. One of the things that sometimes stands out in this feedback is people would love to hear as they either begin their experience as a group leader or want to deepen their career as group leaders to hear any kind of thoughts, advice, words of wisdom that you may have for somebody that's in that kind of situation? Sure. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is something that Bob told me way at the beginning. I think he might have even said this in the class that I was in. He said that if you're willing to make mistakes, you can be a group leader. And I was willing to make mistakes. I had no problem with that. I've made plenty of mistakes. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew I was going to make plenty more. So I could do that. And I think it takes a certain amount of humility and acceptance about our humanness to be a group leader. I think that's important. And I agree with Bob when he said that, when he told me that uh, to be a, 
a group leader, you should be in a group yourself. I think it's the best place to learn. Um, you get to watch a group leader work and you can be critical and praise, praise the group leader. You can do anything you want um, if you can. And keep exposing yourself. You know, my advice would be to keep, keep at it, stay with it and uh, find a good supervisor. It's really important to have a place to be able to talk about all of the, diff the different thoughts and feelings that come up as you progress in the field and lead groups. Uh, there are so many different situations that come up and can take you by surprise and can be, as you said, scary. Uh, it's really important, I think, to have a place to talk about that. Very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking it could be so supportive to us to um, be able to have places to both kind of discharge the tension of, of doing the clinical work and to be open to feedback, to have people point out to us different places where um, maybe we chose one avenue, but we could have easily picked another. And to have that kind of support and feedback just seems like it can be so enlivening to the work that we continue to do. I agree. It's a good way to keep it fresh, to keep your mind engaged, and to be challenged. Really good, important stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of being challenged, the last question that we'd like to ask on the podcast has to do with what would you see as your current challenge or a current, a current growth edge for you and your leadership? Well, one of the things we mentioned earlier, uh, co-leading. That's a challenge for me. Um, as you said before, uh, I, I have experience now, I'm getting older, and a lot of the people that I work with are younger than me. And so the challenge for me is to stay humble, stay aware of my role as co-leader, not as number one co-leader, and remember my place. Uh, I still have an awful lot to learn. I want to keep learning. And uh, I don't want to get complacent. You know, I think that can happen. So I have, I have to accept that challenge to keep putting myself in places where I'm going to be pushed and questioned and, um, and challenged in different ways. I don't want to lose that edge, really. Well, what a wonderful way of keeping that edge strong. And I do think that you model so much, even having been in this field for as long as you have, to be open to continuing to grow, to continuing to explore um, edges, and to continue to stay fresh to that kind of feedback is uh, very, very inspiring. It's a wonderful form of modeling. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't know if it would be fair to, to go through a whole interview like this without mentioning golf, right? Let's talk about it. Okay. You know, it's, it's that old thing when you're playing golf and you're playing well, the worst thing you can think to yourself is, oh, now I got it. Because you're going to be, you're going to be humbled in about three seconds. And that's the kind of thing I want to remember when I'm working. Don't get cocky. Don't think you got it. You know, there's something coming around the corner that you've never seen before. You better keep your eyes open. Be ready. So always be ready to kind of retool your stroke. Yeah. Yeah, keep your focus. Stay, stay here in the moment. Don't go drifting around anywhere. 
Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Jeff, thank you so much for your willingness to be a part of the interview. And it was a fantastic opportunity to talk with you and dialogue in this way. Well, you're very welcome. It's always good to talk with you. If people are listening to this and they would like to follow up with you, how would you recommend they do that? Oh, they can go to my website, which is the Center for Courageous Living.com, or you can email me at Jeff at the Center for Courageous Living.com. And you can even send me a text on my cell phone, 303 817 7565. I'd be happy to communicate with anybody who's interested. Perfect. Well, again, Jeff will be leading our large group process at the annual conference this year in November, and we will be looking forward to hearing from you more, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Take care. Bye.